This summer, we've been in a series of messages from the Psalms that we've entitled Songs from a Broken Heart. And we entitled that because I am convinced that many people who uh, come to church don't necessarily understand that the Bible addresses your most desperate places, the places where you are confused, you're hurting, and you feel desperately alone. What does God have for us? What would God have us do when we find ourselves in that situation? There's places of brutal honesty in Scripture. And quite possibly, it is a place that you find yourself today. The Bible has in it indications where God's people complain without faith. This is called faithless complaining, and the scripture usually refers this to it as grumbling. And the Bible is pretty clear about it. There's warnings. Numbers chapter 14, God warns his people of his judgment upon them. Their time in the wilderness was preceded by that warning. John chapter 6, Philippians chapter 2, James chapter 5, all use these words about grumbling, which is faithless complaining. Faithless complaining is sinful because it accuses God ultimately either overtly or low level that God is somehow doing wrong. But faithful complaining does not impugn God with wrong. Rather, it's honest. It's a groaning expression of what it's like to feel like, oh God, I'm in trouble. There's anguish in my heart, grief that I'm facing. Life in this fallen world, it's futile. What am I to do? God does not mind this kind of complaint. In fact, the Bible actually Listen, encourages it. It's, it's focused on God. In fact, God calls us how to do it. And today, Psalm 142 is one of those places. In fact, these whole series of messages about lamenting, about a core of teaching in the scripture, in the book of Psalms, which was places of prayer, uh, uh, written for prayer, written for singing, it has in it clearly how we are to turn to God and appropriately and with worship come to Him and pray and say honestly, God, this is where I am. And so we want you to understand what this is about and how to do it. The prayers and hymns of the Psalms teach us how we are to express ourselves to God, how we are to do it in worship. And if you don't know this, about a third of the Psalms, of that big book in the middle of your Bible, about a third of them are these laments, sorrow, anger, fear, longing, confusion, and disappointment surround the people of God. And they are found here. 
the depths of your human emotion are contained in those psalms. Brad read Psalm 142 this morning. But one of the things he did not do is read something that is key to understanding why this psalm teaches us what to do. Because, frankly, many of us, we would love it if God's word kind of operated like an owner's manual that you get with your car. In fact, most cars now, they don't even give you an owner's manual. You know it? You have to go online and download it. But an owner's manual will show you how to uh, check the oil, how to turn on the radio, which you need uh, a PhD to do anymore, honestly. And what we really prefer is we like deductive teaching. This, This church gets a lot of that good teaching. And what we like for God to do is say, do this, don't do that. Number one, number two, number three. But some teaching of Scripture just doesn't work that way. In fact, you have to see what's happening and pull out from it what to do. What does God have to say for us, to us? So if you have your Bible, turn back to, turn to Psalm 142. And I want to show you something in the title of the psalm that's critical that you understand before you get into the psalm. Psalm 142, it says that it's a masculine of David when he was in the cave of prayer. A masculine, there are 13 of these types of psalms that we have. And they are meant, what this word means is written for instruction. They are meant to give you, to give the reader the doer of it, to give them wisdom on what to do when they are facing situations. In other words, when you face a situation like David faces, and he describes here, what do you do? And it's not laid out as a commandment. Do this and do that and do the other. It's not given to us that way. Rather, what we see is we we see on display what a guy is experiencing, and what he does in that moment. So what we find is sometimes we have to find what to do by identifying with the person that you're seeing in the Scripture. So it says that it was a masculine of David. While he was in, and this should be telling, while he was in the cave. While he was in the cave. Now there's two caves. There's a cave in Engedi that David found himself in. And this second cave is the cave of Adullam. And I'm not going to go into great detail here. But this is the cave that most scholars would think. This is where David was when, when he's writing about this. And it's described in 1 Samuel chapter 19, chapter 20, and chapter 22. But uh, what you need to know is it's a place that David is hiding, not to get cool from the summer's heat, but to get safe from those who are trying to kill him. So what's happening in this passage that we can observe, that you and I can identify with, that we can draw gospel hope, that we can draw 
comfort and direction and wisdom in what to do. What are we to do? What are we to think? How are we to respond when we find ourselves spiraling down, isolated, and alone? Do you ever feel alone? Some of you do, but you don't talk about it. You don't know, you feel guilty talking about it. You're not quite sure what to do with it. What do we do when we feel alone? Well, the Apostle Paul gave instructions to the Corinthian church about about their actions and their behaviors. Did you know that he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, I urge you to be imitators of me. Paul says, imitate me. So when you look at scripture, sometimes you got to go, okay, what was Paul experiencing? What was David experiencing? And how do I apply that to my life? I want to I show you a couple things that happened in David's life. I want to lay it out, what, what, what we clearly see David doing here. But before we get to that, I want you to come to grips with something. Something that we all need to know, all need to understand. Even when your loneliness is not voiced, we need to understand that in order for us to deal effectively, we've got to come to terms that life, no matter how good things are right now, no matter how bright your future may look in this moment, life has turns that will take you to a cave of trial. I want you to know that what you are going to hear this morning is going to be heavy. That's what someone said to me after service. They came up and said, Brian, that was heavy. It is heavy, but I want you to stay with me because where there is heaviness... If the cross is centered in our focus, there is hope. You and I have hope. And God gave us Psalm 142 not to put us in the pit of the cave of despair and keep us there. But to show us there is a way out. But we first must come to terms. We must first come to grips that life has turns that put you in those caves. Dr. M. Scott Peck wrote a book in 1979 that some of you may be familiar with. It was entitled, The Road Less Traveled. And although I do not agree with much that's in the book, the price of the book is worth just the first two sentences. It goes like this. Life is difficult, period. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. And he goes on to say in the book, once you come to terms with that, actually life can become less difficult. Why is life difficult? Why do we find ourselves in caves of despair, feeling alone and without answers? Often we hear, you may be new to church, 
But you're familiar with the sin terminology. The church is against sin. It's what you think. God's against sin. And your idea of the sin is a list of things, a lot of those things that maybe you want to do. And God's against them. But I want you to know from the standpoint of Scripture, sin is not only the poor choices we make, but sin is the environment that we live within, the sin of others and what it does to us, how it isolates us, how it makes us feel and experience loneliness. Separated from God, separated from other people. See, we know, somehow we know as Christians, as Christians, we know that heaven is not the here and now. We know that it's not available but our hearts are constantly deceiving us and we look for it and we actually expect it. We actually think that if we plan right, we do right, we order our life right, no problem or less problem. And we seek refuge in all kinds of, some of these things are good, but some things are dead end before we even get started. And we know it, but we seemingly, listen to this, we seemingly can't help ourselves. This is the lives scarred by sin. And the depth of suffering that we meet in these places, we seek to eliminate. And sometimes we make this conclusion. It's not very far. It's not a very far trip. That when we think that we can find heaven in the here and now, when it's not delivered, we somehow think that God did not intend for us to face this kind of difficulty. And when you conclude that God did not intend you to face difficulty, it leads you to wrong conclusions about God. It will lead you to wrong conclusions about suffering and the frantic attempt to avoid it. And the only thing that that ultimately leads to, hear me, the frantic attempt to avoid suffering only typically leads to more suffering. We've got to come to terms that no matter how good things are right now, there's life turns. David, King David, nine times we see in Scripture someone attempted to take his life. But we often have a picture of David from his boyhood as as a kid, as a teenager. What we understand is the prophet came to him. We understand that he said, you will be king. It surprised his whole family. And it wasn't long after that, that David finds himself delivering food to his brothers on a battlefield. And on one side is a giant named Goliath. And then on the other side is this quaking army of Israel. And there's one teenage boy standing there going, who is this guy mocking God? And God pulls David out of that line and with a rock and a sling and a carefully delivered throw, guided by the hand of God, the giant came down and David's fame went up. And as David's fame went up, what we often do is this. 
we assume that from there, it was a straight line to the throne. Folks, there are no straight lines where life has no difficulty. There are none. But we live often trying to make that the reality of our life. It's not just David. The scripture's full of it. Look at Abraham. Look at Joseph. Look at Moses. Look at Elijah. Look at Daniel. Look at Ruth. Look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. Look at all the disciples, all of them, the apostles. They faced situations of isolation and being alone. But somehow you are surprised, and I am surprised, when I experience it. All of us are going to face circumstances like this. But we need to know and we need to come to God's word and say, Oh Lord, what do you have to say? What, what do you have to say to me to help me understand what I'm dealing with? Well, I'd like you to turn with your, in your, take your Bible, flip over in the New Testament, way over in the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 11. These are the individuals in chapter 11 that if you're not familiar with the Bible, this particular chapter is called the Heroes of Faith chapter. It defines faith, and it lays out all these who have walked by faith. Your name may go right in that list as well. You're walking by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, look down with me after he describes what faith is and all who had walked by faith. When you get down in verse 36. It says, others who walk by faith. I put that in, that's my emphasis. Others who walk by faith suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Just look, look at me just for a second. I've had some desperate moments, but I'm very grateful nobody's been trying to saw me in two. And we laugh, but I want you to know, I know that there's some of you who sit here this morning that that almost sounds like a relief. God knows where you are. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Some of you know what it's like to be mistreated. The hands of people that you love. Then in verse 38, notice what God's word says about all these heroes of faith of whom the world was not worthy. God's word comes and says, you walk like this, you suffer like that, you know the caves of loneliness, the world is not worthy of you. Not because of your righteousness, because of the deposit of Jesus Christ in your life. 
you're going to know fear. You and I are going to experience caves of loneliness. The question is, what are we going to do? What are we to do? Not just what we're to think, but what are we to do? I believe God's word in Psalm 142, by example that you see in David's life, it shows us what we are to do because of what David did. When you find yourselves in the caves of loneliness, what you do will impact your growth and it will change you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you that a masculine is an instructional psalm. It's meant to give you instruction, give you wisdom on what to do, how to gain it. Watch what David does. Look at your Bible. He says, with my voice, I cry to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy from the Lord. The first thing that you see David doing is he's crying out to God. That's where he goes. He cries out to God. Now, folks, I'm not talking about a nagging headache here where you're rubbing your forehead and you're thinking, oh, I just wish this would go away. This passage is saying this crying out in the Hebrew construction means that it's a shriek of pain where he says, oh, God, I am alone. I feel alone. I'm desperate. It feels like I'd rather be dead. And David understood that death might be right around the corner for him. Cry out to God. It's what you see him doing here. He says, with my voice, I plead for mercy. I pour out my complaint. Verse 2, this pouring out, pouring out the complaint, that's an interesting uh, word, word use here. It means to pile up. David's not saying, I've got one little pain here. I've got a little situation over here. He's saying, God, look at all this stuff. I'm, look at this. I'm piling it up in front of you. He says, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Do you cry out to God? Is that where you go? Secondly, when you find yourselves in a cave of loneliness, what you do will matter. Do this. Do what David did. He prayed, listen, with words. Many, many times I find that Christians have the habit of praying silently. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. You should do it and you should do it often. But you should also make it your diligent practice to speak. It's what we see in Scripture. Say to God, what's going on? Pray with words, not just thoughts. And even more, you're seeing here that his posture is one of pleading. He says, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell him my troubles. I'm telling him. And he says in verse 1, with my voice, I cry. Is that you? He basically is saying, God, as I lay these things in front of you, I know you know what I need. I know that you're God. As I have 
witnessed many times individuals who sat in front of me. Despair had found them from being silent too long. Sometimes you have this tendency to believe that silence is actually the most godly thing that you should do. And sometimes it is. But sometimes what you do in that moment with God is absolutely crucial. And I contend that much of what we see in the Old Testament, God's people do not get in trouble complaining to God. When they go to God and say, God, look at what I'm facing. God, you can see this. That's not where the trouble arises. The trouble arises when they turn and they start complaining to one another about God. They, like you, have said, this is not fair. You and I would be well served in our growth and our walk with the Lord that from the cave of loneliness that we learned to speak and pray with words. He says in verse 2, he says he's in anguish. This is the words like he's in, in labor of childbirth. He says, my spirit is faint. He's without breath and his blood's draining from his face. He has no strength to defend himself. And then then what he says, he says, you see this, Lord. You see this. Look at verse 3. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. In verse 3, before that, he says, you know my way. They've hit a trap. You know, right? You know. You can see what I'm experiencing. And some of you really feel like you're alone in it. You know what it's like to experience isolation, to be alone in a crowded room like this. But David, he says, God, you see where I am. You know the path. He says, that's enough. That's enough. You know where I am. When I say to you, you should pray with words, I want you to know that that's not pulled from thin air. Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 and 2 tells us, from the word of the Lord, Israel, return to Yahweh your God, for you've stumbled in your sin. Verse 2, take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sin, accept what is good so that we may repay you you with the praise of our lips, opening their mouth, speaking about God and his character. Third thing, tell God plainly what you feel. Now this is This is the depth of the cave right here. It's found in verse 4. But at a glance, you may not see it. But I want you to hear where David is. David says, look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. This is how David feels. And for you and for me, when we say, turn to the right and see... That doesn't mean the same thing as it did for a Hebrew. David is basically saying, 
right beside me was the place of honor. To the right was the place of honor. To the right was the place of protection. To the right was the place of companionship. To the right was the place of goodness. David says, look here. There's nobody. No one takes notice. I'm alone. Nobody cares. Some of you, you really do understand what David understood. You know what it's like to find that the loved one that you've given your life to is gone. Just like that. You know what it's like to give your heart and your body to someone else believing in their faithfulness. And they're gone. It's the parent that sits in the room today that wonders why their children never call and don't visit. It's the empty womb of a woman sitting in the room longing for a life that only God can give and she watches other mothers around her with crying babies and would love to hear that in her home. And She doesn't know how to explain that. She doesn't know how to describe it. But she knows the darkness, the loneliness of it. It's the man in the room today with gifts but without a job. And there are men who sit here, and women, both, who knew what it was like to dream of the corner office, only to discover that it's more than mere cliché. It really is lonely at the top. It's the discovery that you have that retirement that we think would bring freedom and joy actually brings a new prison of loneliness. Loneliness is that desperate state where you're gripped with feeling of no strength and no ability to do anything about it. It's a result sometimes of bad behavior, but many, many times it's not bad behavior, but the dark tentacle shadows of sin that surround us all the time and creep into our lives and separate us from God and from each other. This is what sin does. So what do you do? What do we do? What did David do? What did God's men and women do in the Bible? I see, I see in verse 5 and following a very clear example of what David does. And we would do well to apply the same. He runs to God. For refuge. Verse 5. In the Bible, refuge is a place of escape. It's a place of protection for you. It's a place where you gather yourself. In fact, I will go on to say that is clear teaching of Scripture. But refuge is also a place that you go whether it is to a place of true refuge or not. In fact, all of us go somewhere when we hurt. 
The question is, where will you go? When I was 12 years old, I witnessed something that's locked in my mind. It was my father in a state that I had never seen. I was sitting in a dugout. And I looked out and looked down the line and I saw my father sitting alone on some bleachers. He was not supposed to be at my game that day. And the look on his face was not one that said he got off early to come watch my game. Earlier in the day, my father was operating a boom crane at work. And while he was picking up a load, the boom buckled. There were men on the ground, and my father tried to swing the boom out of the way. Some of the men went one way, one man ran under the boom. I had not witnessed my father alone in his thoughts, thinking through split-second decisions, nor was I mature enough to understand that, nor am I now in some ways. Or the unintended consequences that occurred and thrust upon my dad's life. Many, many things can land us in the pit of loneliness. The pain of choices we've made. Unexpected pain that's brought to us. The place where we try to do our very best. But our best is rejected as if I'm not interested. God invites you to come with those heavy, broken pieces, those things that you don't know what to do with. He invites you to come. He invites you to come and face what you're facing with him. Understand that Jesus gives us some of the most compelling, comforting direction in these places. He says to us in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find what? Rest for your souls. Psalm 46 says that God is our refuge. He is the place to hide. To go. God is our refuge, our strength. David's arms could not even hold up, blood draining from him. God says he's our refuge and our strength. A very present help in times of trouble. Maybe it's your practice to actually not be like that. I want to talk to you, to the man, to the woman who sits in this room today, who were trained to do this. When you face the most difficult moments of your life, you wrestle with them in your mind and then you say basically this, I can do this. I can figure this out. I got to buck up. I got I to work hard. That's not David's posture. Nor is it the posture of, a, of people who are broken by their sin of what they appropriately do. What they do is they run to God with their circumstances. They run to God with their pain. They run to God with their loneliness. 
Do you run to God? You should. And David did, and he anticipated what would happen. I want you to see what happens, which is the last thing I want you to see. What we understand and what we see David doing here is that which delivers. Verse 7. He says, bring me out of my prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. David knew how he felt in this moment. I'm alone. No one cares for my soul. But I am so glad that verse 2 is not the end. David did not stay there. He turned his attention to speaking to himself truth versus listening to his circumstances. And we talk a lot about that here. You'll hear it emphasized over and over and over again. Do not focus and listen to your circumstances. It's natural. It's regular that you're going to be tempted to. God does not want you as his child to live captivated and ensnared in the prison of that cave for very long. What God wants you to do is to do what David did. Look at what Jesus said. We, we think, like, like I said, we, we, we think that we can avoid problems. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 16. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you'll have pain. In this world, you'll have trial. In this world, you are going to know what it's going to be like to be lonely. And not for one minute are we minimizing that. You're going to meet trials. But I'm so grateful that Jesus did not leave it there. He said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We see in David that in this place where he is most desperate, he looks out and he says, oh God, bring me out. And look, it is so personal. His, his interaction with God is so personal. He does not say, oh God, deliver me by the skin of my teeth. What he basically says is this, Lord, deliver me. And then he gives God a reason to deliver him. Do you know that that is a pattern of scripture? And David's pattern is not deliver me so that I feel better. David's pattern was this, deliver me so that I may praise you and give thanks to you. Is that you? Do you look for deliverance for your comfort? That's natural. Do you look for deliverance so that you can exalt the goodness of God, to exalt the cross, which is a place of incredible pain and at the same time, amazing comfort? Between the promises of eternal life that we find in Scripture, between the promises to God's people of what he's going to do, where every tear is going to be wiped away, there is the reality of trial in caves of loneliness. And in that pain and in those places of darkness, 
God promises us with this reality that we find in Hebrews chapter 13. The promise that in that darkness, in that place where you don't know what's next, and you feel very, very alone. There's the promise that Christ made. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You're, you're not. You may feel alone. I look in this room today and there are all kinds of stories. There are stories that your neighbor knows. And there are stories that nobody knows about. Some of you sit here today. You know what it's like to walk through that house that you worked so hard to pay for. And you wake up one morning and your children have grown up and you have husband and wife and you're staring at one another and you're wondering now what? There's men standing, sitting in this room today. As you pour your cup of coffee tomorrow, you're wondering where your job's leading. You've been passed over, over and over and over again. And you feel so alone. But you name the name of Jesus as your Savior. There is a difference between confessional truth and operational truth. Run. Don't walk. Run to the refuge. Go. He's waiting. If the path was straight, between the sling in David's hand and the palace. And it was just a trot right up those steps and on that throne. There would be no Psalm 142. But Psalm 142 is there to say to you and to me. In those moments, in those desperate moments... There is refuge. There is hope. There is a Savior and a walk sweeter than you could ever know. In the darkness, I encourage you to go there. Let's stand. With every head bowed, I want to ask you, are you praying for God to give you eyes to focus on Christ? For him to be the source of your hope, I will tell you, this is the place to be. Would you turn from your intense focus on circumstances and turn to him? Will you right here, right now, where you stand, begin to tell God plainly how you feel? How you desperately need his help? Will you humble yourself and quit trying to figure this out? Say, oh Oh God, this new reality, will you help me navigate it? Please, God, help me navigate it.
Some of you sit here on cruise control today. And that's good. The blessings of God, of a fruitful life, and things are going well right now. God bless you. That is wonderful. But I want you to hear what God says to his people in Micah 6, 8. Hear, O mankind, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Will you walk with him in humility? Will you give mercy to those around you who are desperate and hurting and lonely? God's people are intended to do that. And then pray honestly. Pray frankly. God, please deliver me. So that I will praise you more. So that I will lift your name more. So that my heart is full of thankfulness. More and more and more. Lord, will you do that? That's what we're asking for, Father. That's what we're asking for. We need what only you can give. Deliverance from the cave of loneliness and despair. And into your presence where there's peace, where there's joy, where there's companionship, where there's answers. And there is praise to your great name. We offer that as our prayer today in Christ's name.